John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 1044.EZ0510, certificate number 51638. James Frazier Reed. We probably talk about this every time we see each other, but um, do you think you would eat human flesh? We do talk about this a lot. Let's say you're a you're a rugby player. Let's yeah, say your rugby team is in a crash coming back from a game against you, you were on the Gonzaga rugby team? Yeah, we were playing Chile. So let's say you're playing yeah, you're playing against Uruguay or yeah. Chile uh-huh. and your plane crash is coming back. Would you rather eat or be eaten? Well apparently, the only, apparently neither is not an option. The only way that they would eat me is if they killed me, because I'm a survivor. I'm I not going to voluntarily, you know, they're going to have to catch me. A plane a mountain, there's no way that could kill you. No, they're going to have to catch me first. One of your fellow rugby, but they probably could. From your descriptions of, of your rugby performance, they may be faster than you. Oh, right. But they would have to get me down on the ground, which is harder. You can catch me, but can you kill me? There'd be a scrum, mm-hmm. as we say. <laughs> I mean, they might dogpile, but you know, I'm also pretty wary, right? So I'm not going to let you get behind me. Especially if you're carrying a machete or a wrench, you know, I'm going to keep everybody, I'm going to keep everybody in front. You've right? got, you've got some experience. I'm here. a little bit of a herder. Yeah. And, uh, but uh, as far as eating, I've thought about this a lot, of course, not just because we talk about it all the time, but I don't know if we ever have, because it's one of those things where you're like, you read the accounts of, of, uh, sh- people on a ship, uh, you know, floating in the ocean on a boat where they end up having to eat each other or, um, or caught in a mountain pass or whatever, and you think, I don't know what it would take. How hungry do you have to be? I think I think I'd be a pretty easy sell. Uh, to eat a person. Yes. And here's what I'm thinking. I feel like today we've already had to confront the idea that we are no longer eating meat for survival, that we are now choosing to eat intelligent things with eyeballs and personalities. Whoa. Okay. This is a weird, like proto vegetarian argument. But, you're just saying like, if you're going to eat don't you think? a cow, why not eat a human? Well, it's, it's a smaller step. So I'm, I'm, I was reading this book last night, uh, like a memoir set in rural England, like Oxfordshire village in the 
90s. And it really emphasizes how the how important well any new source of pig and any new source of food is. Like a the t- the one time a year when the family mills its flour, they set up their bag of flour in the parlor so that any visitors will come in and admire their bag of flour. But it really it mostly manifests itself through the pig. Uh-huh. And it really is just a sign of prosperity and survival, you know, that they're going to it's it's a festival when they butcher that thing and it's not pleasant, you know, right. the the kids know deep down you, but everybody's just happy because it means we're not going to die this winter. And that, just a hundred years later, we're now in a world where I could eat a Beyond Burger every day. And every time I don't, I'm choosing to eat something that used to breathe and perhaps frolic. And the act of kind of willful uh, compartmentalization I have to perform to eat a lamb chop today, it's just not that different from me eating a John chop if I'm on the plane. I mean, I suppose that it's a, it's, it's a question of how much it's not just, we, 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 we do this a lot in the modern era where we assume that, um, that all of our habits are just because we are used to them and without, um, without culture, we would all just be blank slates and, and you could take any human baby and just feed it dandelion greens and the baby would never think to eat a meat. Not true, of course. Right. Um, like eating meat is something, or I mean, you know, we're om- omnivores by nature, right? So it's, I think that I had cauliflower pasta the other day. Oh yeah. And it, and it was the first time I'd eaten pasta that wasn't just pasta pasta that I felt legitimately fooled, like, that's good. I would eat cauliflower pasta. And even more than Beyond Burger, which is also good, I felt like that was the revolution where they had, they. Cauliflower. And, and by them, I mean they. The secret ingredient was always cauliflower. And by them, they, I mean the UFOs who are gradually like letting their technology permeate our culture. Our secret vegan lords. So rather than give us free energy, they've given us cauliflower pasta and I'm there. I'm all the way there. It's like, I'll use Beyond Burger now because they've got cauliflower pasta. Whereas putting Beyond Burger on regular pasta only solved half the problem for exactly. me. But re- Beyond Burger on cauliflower pasta? Like, take me away, Calgon. Uh, many human societies have performed cannibalism uh, over the centuries, although it's difficult to know. Intentionally? <laughs> or or how, how as, does accidental can it, like you trip and you fall and you take a bite out of your friend's elbow as I mean, you, if, if, as your teeth do they like head toward the ground do they shoo the pigs out of the way on their way to go kill like a like a like a chubby young boy yeah so most of our you know most of our 19th century accounts of uh of cannibalism are suspect just sure. because they were performed by you know racist colonialist types seeing new behaviors for the first time and recent scholarship makes a lot of what they found look dubious. You know, a lot of the assumptions were, yeah, this tribe uses human flesh as a primary food source. And that's not really a thing. It appears that where cannibalism was and is practiced, it's, it's got a, you know, a ritual, right? A religious component. You consume your enemies hard or Or a medicinal component, which is actually not that different from, uh, you know, medieval Europe through, I don't know, through like the Renaissance and after there was, it was still not uncommon to 
associate different healthful qualities with human blood and organs. And that's why I eat my fingernails. Oh, you do? Yeah, for medicinal purposes. Oh, gross. Yeah. It's a, it's a, a, a kind of a colonic. I mean, most people chew them. No, no, you got to eat them. Because then your fingernails are actually inside, scraping away at the inside of your intestine. It's like scratching, except from inside. And you use your own fingernails. So, uh, so refreshing. So yeah. satisfying. <laughs> I don't actually do that. Please don't write me. What do, uh, what do you think human flesh tastes like? Have you ever read the accounts? Seems like it would be very gamey, very, um, you know, like iron Why? tasting. We're not, we're not running, we're not svelte antelopes running through the woods. No, but we we're don't, marbled. we don't have, um, we, we're, we're not ve- vegetarian, right? So we're not, we're, you know, all the, all I the see. delicious creatures are eating grain. Well, you are, you'll taste better once you make the full switch to California rice at Chipotle. That's right. But, but that's true, right? I mean, prey animals are mostly vegetarian. I mean, you would never eat a tiger. Uh, you wouldn't download a tiger, right? I mean, uh, you wouldn't eat a even a fat tiger, even like a even a zoo tiger. You're not going to say like mm, marbled tiger fat because there's something about a something about a carnivore that it intensifies the meatiness of the meat. Yeah, just uh, it, I just presume that it's bad. And and when you think about like I mean, all we the, don't eat that many. I mean, no carnivores are hardly ever eaten. What right? is a carnivore that you have ever eaten? Uh, I've had alligator. Yeah. I've eaten bear. Um, Bears are semi-carnivores. They're omnivores, right? Yeah. It's not, it's not delicious. But also I feel like the evidence that human beings are not good is that it is that most top predators also don't want to eat us, right? That's because we're so wily. It's just like they all prefer elk to us or in the case of sharks, water elk. That's probably the water elk as I call the manatee. That's just got to be ease of, I mean, we're, we're kind of bony and spiky. We stand up. We have guns. There's really nowhere you can take a bite out of us that won't have a ton of just ribs and cartilage in it. Yeah. I think there, you often see a, uh, an animal eats us. I mean, bites us, kills us. And then loses and interest. And then it's just like, ugh. Wanders off. Yeah. Uh, there are accounts of what, there are human accounts, modern accounts of what human flesh tastes like. Oh, really? Uh, generally, the consensus is it looks like beef tastes like pork. Although the most detailed account is from one uh, William Seabrook, a uh, early 20th century explorer who in West Africa wrote a famous account of uh, just eating human meat with a African tribe and uh, can't overstate how much it tastes like veal. Just the best veal he's ever had. Veal? Yeah. Come on. Maybe it's how you serve it. Maybe they served it with some, some Parmesan and... Come on. He's, you know what, that feels like Orientalist too. Well, I think his account was later suspect. That sounds like some Hemingway baloney. Yeah, I I think, uh, is that what you call human flesh? Hemingway baloney? Hemingway baloney. (laughs) I'd like to have a big bite of Hemingway baloney, if you know Long pig, long pig. It's not always, I mean, cannibalism is not illegal everywhere. Even today, as I found out. Go on. A couple years ago when a Japanese performance artist named Mao Sugiyama held a happening in which he served, uh, he's a self-proclaimed asexual. Sure. Which to most people just means they'd rather watch TV and go to bed. But Not in, interested. Yeah. In his case, it means he sliced off his procreative organs and uh, pan-fried them with some button mushrooms and Italian parsley and served them to six high-paying guests at an art happening. Uh, 
uh, for his 22nd birthday. Do you have any follow-up questions? (laughs) (laughs) I'm almost never completely nonplussed, but... uh, You're usually so plussed. I'm really plussed under most circumstances, but that is really... uh, that That has rendered me speechless. I was getting into the, you know, he actually did invite a larger group of people, but he didn't have enough to go around. Why not? You could cut it into smaller and smaller bites. How much? How much of an artist's penis do you need to satisfy your? What is the recommended daily allowance? Yeah. I mean, all you need to say is I had I ate some of his pan fried penis. Nobody's going to be like, oh yeah, how much? How much? Right, <laughs> eight ounces, four ounces. How many slices of Hemingway bologna? He had a larger group, but he served them um, a rattlesnake or something like that, crocodile, some other exotic meat. Like yeah. maybe maybe a snake. I don't, I don't think that in the family of exotic meats it goes crocodile, armadillo, a uh, man's penis. What comes after that? I feel like Manatee. I feel like man's penis is way 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 out on the on the the spectrum. You feel like man's penis is way way out on the spectrum. Especially if That's for omnibus out of context. If the um especially if the the if your waiter and cook are the man who's yeah. who has put you're gonna have to make eye contact with the owner of the um, scrotum you're you're tucking into. So this is this is the example of cannibalism you're describing. It's not that it's not that he served humans at the at the festival. Yeah, I mean cannibalism doesn't imply that the person has to be dead, right? You can I guess not. You can cut off your arm and eat it. You're, yeah. st- you're still a cannibal. Sure, right? I guess that's right. You know, America being a, a frontier country, most of our cases uh i mean most recent cases of cannibalism in the news tend to be related to some kind of disaster a shipwreck or a rugby plane crash the worst kind of plane crash um there were a lot of world war ii you know in europe a lot of world war ii era privations the sieges of um, leningrad and stalingrad led to documented cases of people having to right. use the frozen dead as a food source um the uh, you know the most famous ones in american history are cases of the west right um presumably because i don't know the kind of i don't need your rules kind of soul that heads west also doesn't mind cannibalism taboos well or i i I also think that um the story of the american west is a lot of city folk from back east coming west and not having the skills I mean, it's the Christopher McCandless problem, right. right? If if he had the skills, he could have survived a winter in Alaska, or he especially could have survived a summer in Alaska, uh, because people do it all the time that have the skills. The movie would have been boring, though. Well, yeah, that's right. Oh, well, you know, the movie would have been uh, like Revenant or whatever, <laughs> just Leonardo DiCaprio killing bears. He just beats up a bear and heads on back to civilization. Hey, I killed a bear. But but that's kind of the confusing part about a lot of these Western cannibalism stories, because my understanding is that if you have fresh water, you can go without food for two months. Yeah, it's, it's more than a month, I think. You know, McCandless lived for three and a half months out there, but he was also eating stuff, seeds and birds. And I mean, he had a gun. He could, you could kill a squirrel and roast it. He just didn't, he just didn't like work out kind of the basics. Like he tried to, he killed a moose and didn't know how to smoke the meat. Like I wouldn't know how to smoke the meat. But like if you're, well, yeah, I mean, 
try and smoke a smaller thing first before a moose. I just think it's easy for us to say that. And you have to imagine the 10 tasks you have to get right to get to the point where you're smoking a squirrel, perfect it, move on to a rabbit. It's true. But by the same token, it's an ancient practice that was, yeah, sure, handed down from from mother cat to her kittens. But you're right. But they all figured it out. They all figured it out, right? You have to build a tent and you light a fire and you put the thing in there and it, and hope that it worked, right? And you do it until it does work. So survival is a thing that humans have managed since that we first came down from the trees, Ken. Yeah, when did you think we first managed survival? Let's see. Very early on. Some At some point early on, we started to learn how to survive. So I, I, I'm always confused. Like, if your plane crashes in the Andes, I don't know how how long they were there. How, you know, the Donner party had Bef- to survive before the, the winter. Before the team started eating each other? Yeah. Weirdly, it was like 10 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> That's, it seems to me like it's... Uh, we call those locker room problems. Yeah. It's in the sports world. I get that it would be hard. I, uh, I just am never sure at what point I would stop chasing squirrels and start coveting my neighbor's buttock. Pie. Yeah. Have you ever been on uh, Colorado University? Do you know the the dining hall uh, at the University of Colorado? Yeah, is, yeah, is I've eaten there at Alfred Packer Dining Hall. Yeah, named for the the famed Colorado cannibal who you know wandered out of the mountains one day, and everyone said, "Hey, where's the rest of your party?" And he was like, "Oh, yeah, I don't know. Things just really went wrong and yeah. uh, lost and he, along the way." He's rubbing his tummy as he says it <laughs> suspiciously. Uh, you know the most famous of these cases, of course, in American history is the Donner party because it's, because the cannibalism is really just a, uh, it's really the icing on the cake. Yeah. That was a, that was a, uh, as we say, a cluster F. It's a crazy story, you know, even without the fact that half the survivors eventually had to resort to eating some of the other non-survivors. Um, it actually should have been called the Donner Reed party. In fact, it was originally called the Donner Reed party, like the Donner Reed show, I guess. Uh huh. Um, Donner Reed. Because uh, George Donner was one of the leaders of the party, but J- James Frazier Reed uh, was also one of its founders, and his name has not come down to us. Is it because he got eaten? <laughs> <laughs> he did not. See, that's what's interesting. He uh, is one of the most, uh, he's the most fascinating part of the Donner party story to me, and he has a second act. You know, famously, no second acts in American lives. But, but this he, is, he came back and became a rap artist? This is Exactly. Uh, this is some guy where the Donner Party is uh, was not the end of his story. He was a, an American. And the reason why James Fraser Reed, by the way, is the subject of this entry is because it was a request from a listener. Axel, uh, Axel donated to the Patreon at the Washing Bear tier and requested James Fraser Reed as a subject. For, well done, Axel. For reasons of his own. Is Maybe Axel is descendant from... James Frazier Reed. It's quite possible. Because he, uh, he survived and, and presumably spoilers, reproduced. He does reproduce. Yes. He reproduces uh, avidly. Uh, he was an Irish immigrant. He was born around 1800 and came to America with his widowed mother in the early 19th century. And by the 1840s, he's doing well for himself. He's a prosperous uh, farmer and furniture dealer in Springfield, Illinois. Uh, he's got a, he's got a sawmill of his own and, you know, the wood goes into his furniture. He's got a wife and four young children, but he is not quiet in his soul. Boy, isn't that the way? I mean, I used to be a farmer and a grocer in Illinois and I couldn't. You had a sawmill? I couldn't hack it. 
Was it because the West was calling you? I, it was. It was. The West was calling. I mean, I that's what like, happened in the 1840s. What am I, some kind of farmer and grocer? No. I mean, in his case, it really does seem like a midlife crisis. You don't think of the Oregon Trail as a midlife crisis option, but back then, maybe a lot of people who were like, well, I mean, this is everything I've always wanted, and yet- They didn't have Corvettes yet. Or I mean, they did. They were just ships, ships <laughs> of war. What if people bought a like a Corvette ship back then? <laughs> like, I, honey, I'm just so restless. I'm going to build, I'm going to buy a Corvette. I'm going to rebuild a Mustang, but like an actual horse. <laughs> this seems to be the case, his case. He's in his mid forties and everything's turning up James Frazier Reed. And he still thinks, boy, over those hills. You You're know. in your mid forties. Yeah, but I'm already living in the Pacific Northwest. Where would I go? Alaska, I guess. Alaska. I've never been tempted to pick up steaks and leave. Human steaks? I've never been tempted <laughs> to pick to, up a delicious human steak and, and, at, and grill it at the, uh, at the whole foods. Uh, so with, uh, it, you know, another local named George Donner, he decides George and Jacob Donner, his friends who are brothers, he decides to leave everything behind and get, uh, his family out West where, you know, he, he can't even say it's a prosperity or a second chance because he's doing great. And he's in Springfield, Illinois in the 1840s. That is the frontier. He could have been president of the United States. He's done it. Um, what? He was president of the United States? No, he's, but he's achieved oh. the American dream. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. There is going to be a near American president in our story. But he's it's on not the frontier. He's, you know. Tippecanoe and Tyler, too. He's living the life. But uh, California called back then. And so he and his friends, the Donners, hop in their covered wagons, previously covered on omnibus. That's why they're covered wagons, because we covered them already. Are you going to San Francisco? He uh, is not going to San Francisco, but he does know the way to San Jose, Oh, okay. it turns out. All right. Um, A little bit south of there. One thing you might not know about the Donner Party is it had one very fancy midlife crisis vehicle in it. Uh, James Fraser Reed's wife, Margaret, was prone to headaches. Okay. Maybe this is part of his midlife crisis. Sure, that's why he wants to go to California. His, his, get away from his shrew. His invalid <laughs> wife that he doesn't understand. Uh, so he builds for her a fantastic double-decker covered wagon. Hot tamales. With like spring-loaded, you know, kind of shock absorber, spring-loaded seats to try to keep his wife's... Uh, migraines at bay oh how thoughtful uh like a, a real gourmet you know like a um a supply of of good liquor uh you know he was going to live well on the way west and it really it, everybody in the group called it the palace car because it was the biggest and most luxurious vehicle that anybody had ever tried to take from the Eastern United States into the west at that time in retrospect he wishes he'd brought more sacks of beans Yes. Fewer bottles of gin and, and less single malt. More hardtack. That's exactly right. Um, so he's a, you know, and he, over the course of the expedition, he comes to be recognized as a capable man and a leader, but he's also, as we'll see, a little hot-headed and prone to some bad decisions. The palace car is one of them because it really slows down their progress, which means when they arrive at Fort Laramie uh, and, you know, have to tackle the Rockies, have to tackle the mountains between them and California. Um, they are later than they should have been. And he also makes the mistake of believing a guidebook writer named Lanford Hastings. Mm, never believe Lanford Hastings. A name like Lanford Hastings, he really does seem like a, uh, 
a Harold Hill type shyster, right? He does. He, I, I feel like he's got a bowler hat on a little twisty uh, handle, and he's like, step right up, Lanford Hastings. Hastings has come back east and has told everybody, look, if you're going to the Oregon Trail, yeah, you want to you wanna head up towards Fort Bridger. But if you're going to California- You take the Hastings Cutoff. You take the Hastings Cutoff, which means you go around the south side of the Great Salt Lake. Instead of around the north. What? I can tell you right now that's not the right way. What, what would be the downsides of going around the south side of the Great Salt Lake? Because you hit those dumb mountains in Nevada that you can't get over. Well, even before then, you hit the salt flats. Oh, right. Of course. The, the, and you're going to get run down by some hot rod. But, uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> but did I tell you when we were out there driving around the salt flats last time we were there? You could just... Yeah, you can just haul ass out on salt flats. So we had like the kids, like Caitlin's like... Uh, or did Caitlin get to drive? can't remember if both the kids drove. We, your, had, we had two unlicensed kids driving a Honda Odyssey. As fast as they could? Yeah. There's still, there was still salt on the underside of that car until we traded it in years later. I was uh, test driving some cars this weekend because uh, my family now insists that I buy a car that isn't from the 1970s. You're finally a grown-up. And I was noticing that most cars are geared in such a way uh, now as to make you feel like you're going fast when you're not. But there were, I was test nudge, driving, nudge. I was test driving a couple of American cars that were, uh, that were still geared in the old fashioned way, which is to try and make you feel like you're not going fast when you are. <laughs> and at one point I looked down and I was going 110 miles an hour or something on, on the freeway and just didn't feel like it. And then I got back into the regular car that, that also doesn't belong to me, but is part of my family retinue of cars. And we were driving 70 miles an hour and I just felt like I was going like a bullet. And it's all about the way cars are just, I don't know, geared and insulated. Our new car has a controversial new manufacturer installed top speed limit. Oh, nanny state. They've put the nanny state, in this case, Sweden, has put a uh, 112 mile per hour limit on its entire vehicle line as kind of a nod to, I don't know if it's safety or saving the earth or both. Sure, both. I, I mean, I don't know what difference I'm making. You know, when I used to go 113 uh-huh. on the highway, the glaciers were, glaciers were receding. But now that I can only go 112, things seem okay. Now, the Volvo is the cauliflower pasta of the auto industry. And it really did convert me. I was like, yeah. 112. I'm fine with that. I'm okay now. I guess I'm not an American anymore. I'm an honorary Swede. But uh, James Frazier Reed, I guess, is kind of a, he, he's kind of the forerunner of the 50s road trip dad who has read the guidebook and he persuades the group that the Hastings cutoff is the way to go. Even though at Fort Laramie, he meets a friend of, or somebody he knows from Illinois coming back from the West, coming back from, from uh, Oregon or California, who tells him, oh no, you can't take wagons that way. That's just not going to work. I, I, I've been that way. There's no trail there. And he's like, ah, yeah, what a jokester, you know? And how much time does he expect to save via the Hastings cutoff relative to just the regular path? You're to supposed California? to say it is it is quicker. It's less distance covered. And uh, in theory, you could save three weeks. Whoa, that's a lot if you're behind schedule at that's Fort a Laramie. Big deal. And I think that's what that's what makes the difference. And that's what allows him to persuade the, the men. Unfortunately, uh I mean, there's no trail there. There, there is no Hastings cutoff. The, as they as they head south into the salt flats, well, first of all, it's not navigable. They end up having to cut down trees just to, you know, get the wagons through, get them to the salt flats. Right, and once they get there, they get endlessly bogged down in the salt flats. And instead of saving them three weeks, the Hastings cutoff uh, 
which is what I call it when I serve my penis at a dinner party. Yes. Uh, ends up costing them over a month, five weeks lost. So it's a, you know, eight week swing. Boo. So really futurelings. Stay on the path. That's the one thing we want to tell you. If you see the Hastings cut off, stay far away. Stay on the straight and narrow. Uh, they get to the uh, Humboldt River in central Nevada. It's already October. They're not even ascending, you know, the steep eastern climb into the Sierras. There's not a ton of like fresh fruit around the Humboldt River in central Nevada. That's exactly what's happening. Supplies are running low. It's still murderously hot. They have this ticking clock they know of getting snowed in before they get to California. And you can't just go to Reno or to uh You can't get you can't get dollar ninety nine steak and eggs <laughs> like you could today if you're hungry around Truckee. Um, and this is where the inciting incident happens. Uh, a teamster named, they're trying to get up a sandy slope and the oxen are having a hard, oxen are having a hard time, particularly, I assume the ones trying to pull this crazy double decker, uh, palace car. He invented the Winnebago, I think basically. Uh, Yeah. Right. And uh, another teamster named John Snyder turns his whip handle onto James Fraser Reed's oxen. Oh, and just starts whipping them, bashing them with the whip handle to try to get him up the slope. James Fraser Reed not into somebody whipping his ox. Um, not in whip your is, own ox. Is that a euphemism? Yeah. Uh, he uh, he protests and I think pulls a knife to oh. to threaten Snyder. Oh dear! In which case, Snyder turns the whip handle on him, and in some accounts, on his wife Margaret as well. Oh boy, Snyder's really. And as a result, uh, Reed stabs him in the chest multiple times, and then a half hour later, he's dead. Uh, this stops forward progress for a while as the party tries to decide. I mean, this is really, speaking of locker room problems, Yeah, this is the kind of thing that'll really bum out an expedition through Nevada. You've, you've been on a road trip through Nevada. Tempers can run high. I have. Somebody kill somebody else with a knife, it's going to get even stickier. Ken, we haven't talked for a while about omnibus t-shirts and merch, a thing that I'm super proud of, and I know you are too. I'm really excited about these new June shirt designs. The uh, I just heard got an email from someone who missed the mail truck shirt. One of the great shirts. Back when we first offered it. Uh, and this person should be delighted to hear that both shirts in January are... Uh, mail truck options. They are gray t-shirts for those who didn't want black or white. January? You said January. Did I say January? Yeah. I meant June, which is January in the Southern Hemisphere. There you go. That's right. It's the, it's the January, it's the June of January. It's the January of summer, I always say. So Uh, both June shirts you're saying are mail truck shirts. Yes. And here's the deal. One of them is an old Grumman LLV driven by Mr. Zip himself, Mm -hmm. gray with the omnibus logo in blue. But then- the sparkly new one is one of these new next generation fleet of mail trucks with a cool, sexy 21st century Mr. Zip driving and the omnibus logo in red. And they both look pretty great. How cool are they? I love them both. And um... they're in kind of fun mid century modern style, uh, like something straight out of The Incredibles 2. The, yeah. That movie that the kids love, yeah, they mm-hmm. they in, uh, they invoke the the great history of mail trucks, and as as you know, uh, the way that fan communities operate, the mail truck is now synonymous with omnibus, which was genius of us because uh, as a 
you know, quasi-federal organization, they can't complain. Yeah, right. I mean, what can they, although, although when the Postal Service band came out with their smash hit single, Such Great Heights, they actually were confronted by the Postal Service. Who insisted? Who said you can't call a band the Postal Service? Yeah. Well, what they did was they said we'll let you uh, call your band the Postal Service if you do some ads for the Postal Service. They had there was some kind of friendly tit for tat. Well, you know what? We would do ads for the Postal Service if if that would let us sell mail truck shirts. We, we support the Postal Service. So buy the mail truck shirt and precipitate whatever whatever confrontation we're going to have with the the U.S. Postal Service, and let's get this ball rolling. If you uh, missed out on the mail truck shirt the first time or want to see these new designs, just head to omnibusproject.com slash store, and you can see not only shirts, but all the other mugs and hats and whatnot that uh, we have to offer. Thanks to our friends at Mediocrity for uh, putting out these two new shirt designs. They're going to be on sale for all of June, but then they won't be anymore. So act now. Act now. Get those shirts. You know, my bass player was, uh, before I hired him in the band, he was a FedEx driver, but he was in his early 20s and didn't know anything. And some, He knew how to turn right, and that's it. Somebody at FedEx had taught him to pump his brakes uh, going downhill or something. He had it in his mind that in order to save your brakes going downhill, that you would pump them. And we were outside of Winnemucca, coming down the big hill and I'm in the back fast asleep and I wake up to the, the, to the feeling of the, the van, the beat dropping, just like, <clears throat> just <clears throat> like pumping. And I was like, what are you doing? And he was like pumping the brakes. And I was like, why? You know, it's it a sunny day, bright, bright sunny day. And he was like, oh, you know, it's what you do on a downhill. And I was like, it's not what you do on a downhill. And, uh, I almost stabbed him. Right in the chest. <laughs> Did he turn a whip handle on you? No, nope, he what, wouldn't have dared. I don't know. What, a, what, a, what is a bassist equivalent of a whip handle? Yeah, the, the low E string. I made him pull over and get out, and, and we had a big a big row, a row. Well, th then you can exactly understand what happened to the Donner Reed party here. Yes. And this is the point at which they stop being the Donner Reed party. Snyder was very popular. Uh, Reed, despite being a leader of the expedition, was kind of a hot-headed guy who had already made a couple bad calls and was not well-liked. Well, he had this ridiculous And he had this fancy too. limo that they couldn't even get up the hill. Yeah. Uh, so there's discussion of what do they do? Do they hang him? Right. Do they just let it go and keep going? Finally, they, you know, this being America, they go for the compromise middle way and they decide to banish oh, elect him. Elect him to the U.S. Congress. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they decide to banish him from the expedition. Oh, okay, sure. Just him, or does he have like? Uh, does he have some minions? His wife and kids stay. He doesn't have any other really allies in the expedition. So his wife and kids stay with the uh, expedition. But he ride. He is told to ride on ahead with a with his horse, leaving his family in the palace. Just car. the man. Just him. Wow. Okay. I assume. I assume they don't know what his chances of survival are, and they don't want to condemn her to the same fate. Or they know that the wagon can't make it. Um. Unfortunately, as if you know the story of the Donner Party, you know riding on ahead in a horse is actually where you want to be. That's right. That was the better the better verse. That was the way to go because uh, they were late and the snows came early. They got up to what is to Donner Pass, and an amazing coincidence, the Donner Party. So weird. Crossed I, the Sierras I, I, at Donner Pass. I wonder that all the time. 
How is that possible? You can tell why they made for it. They're like, this has got to be a good omen. <laughs> if it were the Donner Reed Fast, that would be better. But uh, I don't think it had a name back then. I was I was trying to find out what the Donner Pass was called before it was the Donner Pass. Probably had a Native American name that no one bothered to record. <laughs> it had a beautiful, poetic, <laughs> indigenous name that uh, yeah, everyone who knew is now lost. Sorry. Um, so he gets ahead of the, you know, he, he crosses at Donner summit, right. Um, you know, where you can cross today. If you've ever taken I 80 across America, that's how you get into California. And he got across and got on with his life, found a new wife, (laughs) new new wife, new four kids. Uh, That's what California does for you. That's what a midlife crisis is. No, he beat the snow by a few days. They missed it by just a few days. And so he finds himself in uh, the beginnings of civilization. You know, he arrives. Green, uh, Grass Valley. Uh, yeah, Placerville. I guess he yeah. gets to, yeah, I guess he gets to Sutter's Fort, which was then kind of the first bit of civilization. And uh, the snows have come to the mountains. What year is this, BT-dubs? 1846. So... Sutter is just uh, right. Sutter's just a little old fella sitting there. He's two or three years away from being news <laughs> coast to coast. Right now, uh, I'm sure he has a mill. He's got a mill, right? But nothing's going on there. And uh, cutting down trees. He's at his fort, and uh, you know he immediately gets supplies, and you know he immediately heads back up to try to rescue the the party, seeing that snow has come. He can't get through. His trip is blocked just 12 miles from emigrant gap so he's not mad about being ostracized because he's got his wife and kids still there and he's like i gotta get back i gotta help him out he is uh we are terribly worried about his family uh, and rightly so they are in a obviously a just most likely lethal situation trapped in the sierras over the winter would they have called it a pickle then or is that a <laughs> more recent coinage <laughs> i think they would have said it was a real pickle a real pickle but it was a swear back then you couldn't say the p word right well, that's a real P word. If you know what I mean. The ladies would have to say <laughs> pibble or puddle or something. They'd have mm-hmm. to mince the uh, the oath. So he gets back to Sutter's Fort trying to get uh, a rescue group, party. group of men, a rescue party together and is told, yeah, look at the mountains. That's until February. There is no getting back up there. Oh, so the, so the guys sitting around Sutter's Fort are too chicken to go up and help these people. Is that what uh, they knew about them? I always thought the Donner Party, the problem was that nobody knew they were there. No, everybody knew they were there, and they were just like, hey, what are you going to do? They're way over there. Wow. Anybody hear of snowshoes? Not a lot of options at Sutter's Fort. And here's the here's the complicating factor. Uh, they get a, a telegraph from the president saying, Mr. Sutter, the Mexican-American War has just begun. Let's have the Mexican-American War. California is now a military theater. Because, you know, we say these people are heading to California, but what we really should say is they're heading to North Mexico. Right. Which is what California was at the time. And uh, the Californios are getting more and more annoyed at the Anglo settlers pouring in. Uh, people like Donner and Reed with West Coast fever. Right. And uh, they it, don't know our local ways. It becomes a full fledged war. And this is a side of the Donner story I wasn't aware of either. They were, they're fighting down in Sacramento. Well, there was actually fighting in Northern California, as we will see. But Sutter says, look, there's no men here. Everybody here is being, all the soldiers that are normally quartered here are being sent south to fight the war. What you need to do is to head on to, um, 
to Yerba Buena, like go out to the San Francisco Bay right. and talk to the uh, commandant there. Maybe he has men to spare. Sure. A lot of, a lot of guys just sitting around. <laughs> <laughs> just like, just like Silicon Valley today. <laughs> That's right. A lot of guys in the mission just driving up rents. A lot of guys playing foosball uh, and eating free breakfast cereal at work. So Reed uh, gets a horse, sets out for a mission, a little mission called San Jose. Uh, uh-huh. It turns out he does know the way. Turn left at Albuquerque. He arrives there, and uh, by the way, the the person running the fort is Colonel John C. Fremont. I knew that. Who is Fremont, uh, California? Sure. That's why they call it that. Is the Fremont neighborhood of Seattle named for Fremont? I assume different, so. No, different. Fremont. Are you sure? Because he became a national figure. He becomes the first Republican presidential candidate in eighteen fifty two. I want to say it's the same Fremont. Oh, is it? I don't know. I'm gonna now. I'm gonna look it up. Fremont, Washington. Let's see what it says. It's. Uh, I'm sure the first thing it says is it's a nuclear free zone. It is named after Fremont, Nebraska, which in turn the hometown of two of its founders. Fremont, Nebraska, is home of Midland University, and Fremont yes. was named after John C. It Fremont. Is. Wow, because so Fremont, Nebraska, was on the Mormon trail. It's Fremont, Nebraska's all the way down. I mean, even though he is not yet a presidential candidate, he is one of the most famous explorers of the America. Can you imagine you you get to the fort to to try to? This is like when the airplane shows up to rescue you, and it's Harrison Ford flying the plane. He gets to the fort, and it's John C. Fremont himself who says, "Sorry, buddy, uh, all my men are." heading south to fight the Battle of Santa Barbara. Right. Which, yeah, it's kind of funny. You read about the Mexican-American War in California, and all the battles are named after these really nice, chill places. Do you think they had headed up and had the Battle of Pismo Beach after? <laughs> they, they're up like the Battle of Napa, the Battle of Sonoma. The Battle of Malibu. Uh, in fact, by the time uh, our man, Mr. Reed, gets to San Jose, the fighting has reached Northern California. He's recruited... And while he is anguishing over his family, he fights in uh, the Battle of Santa Clara, the only battle of the Mexican-American War that happened in Northern California. I mean, you can kind of see where you'd be worried about your family and you're like, can we get this war over with? And it would make you a, uh, make you like maybe an impassioned fighter because you're like, yes, okay, die, die, die. Like the sooner we get done with the Battle of Santa Clara, maybe some of these bozos will come uh, help me rescue my uh, family in the uh, Sierras. Exactly. And that's what happens. After the battle, he's got new military connections. He's able to finagle together a relief expedition. And this is what month now? Uh, he and his men get up to Donner Lake, again, the fortuitously named Donner Lake, by late February. Oh, boy. And I believe he is the first one to reach, uh, I mean, four relief parties get up there. Um, but I think he is the first one to reach the stragglers of the Donner Party, and he finds there are still 47 survivors left, roughly half of those who set out from Illinois. His wife and his four children are all alive. Whoa! Presumably they were... They just were hiding on the second story. They were hiding away the good stuff, (laughs) the secret food in their their palace car. Yeah, I don't know which of his family actually was emaciated enough to turn to cannibalism. Um, the funny part is his rescue party actually got snowed in on the way out, trying to get word back that he had found the Donner party and a second rescue party had to come in and rescue his rescue party. Is it, is it the case that some members of the Donner party survived without resorting to cannibalism? 
and the cannibalism was just like a thing that some of the people got into? There were like kind of two different cliques that were into different things. Because it seems like that would discredit the cannibalism if it wasn't strictly Maybe there necessary. was only enough food for, say, 20 people to survive. And so that means the other 25 had to turn to cannibalism. But it seems like if you were doing it right, everybody would get an equal share of the food until it ran out. You wouldn't have like, well, there's only enough food for 20 of us, so... Who wants to be a cannibal? Maybe there were some people who were eager to... Um, who were more into it. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah, there, some people are volunteering even before there's... Um, I mean, it's the cannibalism that makes this a, a celebrated case from coast to coast. Right. Because, you know, pioneer family getting trapped in the mountains, that was happening all the time, and sure. often word didn't get any further than right. Fort Sutter's Fort. Space ghost, also a big thing, but not yet coast to coast. <laughs> but in this case, the lurid details are exaggerated in all the press and all the and all the big magazines. You're you're saying that the cannibalism was not was not as big a deal as it was made out to be. <laughs> Why do we always talk about the cannibalism? There's other there's other cool things about the Donner Party. They played a lot of Uno. Yeah, they, they think about all the songs they wrote. <laughs> um, and so uh, the snow melts. Uh, Donner's family has all, sorry, Reed's family has all survived and the Reed's uh, are happy to enter California and begin their new lives. Now, and Reed himself, his reputation is not besmirched as it would have been were he to have been one of the cannibals. Isn't the cannibalism a thing that like kept some of these people from eventually running for governor? And it, the cannibalism is actually very fortuitous for him because it, it, erases all uh memory of oh of his murder of his murder of john snyder i mean this guy just stabbed a stabbed a fellow party member in the chest and now that's like the least interesting thing right about the expedition so if you're gonna if you're gonna murder a coworker, you know do it in a place that's about to have some massive uh osha violation or something well hang on let me write that down yeah it's good it's good advice yeah okay it's good all advice right. uh if you ever find a stranger in the alps i mean i don't have that many coworkers. present company accepted but now, unlike everybody else, and the other difference between him and everybody in the Donner Party is he has had a taste of California. And in particular, he has fallen in love with the South Bay. He loves San, San Jose. Jose. Hey, wow. I mean, even though <laughs> even though he ended up, even though he went there in a panic to try to get relief together to save his dying family and ended up having to fight Mexicans, right. he was like, you know, you know what? This like, is a nice place to settle down yeah. after all this. <laughs> One infinite loop has really good high-speed internet. Yeah, exactly. There's fiber. <laughs> there's fiber internet. Um, he he uh, he he went to West Palo Alto, but not East Palo Alto. <laughs> I mean, imagine San Jose back then is very different. You know, there was a mission there, right? But uh, all the orchards that the that the Padres had planted have kind of been abandoned and overgrown. But he's a canny Illinois farmer that can tell, hey, this is really good bottom soil. Sure. Um, these a, fruit, these fruit trees are just ready to come back. Yeah, he's got sawmill slash furniture store owner slash farmer expertise. Right. And he arrives at the perfect time because, spoilers, the United States wins the Mexican War. Oh, wait a uh, minute. I wish I'd known that before I bought all these shares in Mexico. <laughs> And suddenly uh, there is a power vacuum there because all the well, all the wealthy Mexican alcaldes that used to run the place in the Zorro days uh, have had to head south, right? For their you know because their new the new Anglo settlers are kicking everybody out. And there's a new kind of system of of regidores like commissioners that are going to run the area. So he runs for regidor, 
and he wins. So he's one of the town fathers of, of San Jose. He uh, sees immediately a, builds a two-story <laughs> farmhouse that looks like his Conestoga wagon. Uh, no, but he does lease all these orchards that haven't been producing any fruit. And suddenly he has a bumper crop of everything you can grow in this amazing Mediterranean climate, figs and quince and right. apples. And for his dried fruit, gets a bunch of sugar and cocoa and coffee and rice back. So now he's a Pacific merchant. Right. Rising, up and coming. Um, he and his family, by the way, they're all still living in tents in the orchards while they pick this stuff. Because San Jose is not a town yet. Right. But finally, they do move down into the Pueblo, into kind of this one-room adobe with a dirt floor and a, a leather, you know, just an oxide hanging over the door. Um, their fifth child is born. Um, you know, he's in on the ground floor. These are the salad days. He's in on the ground floor of what seems to be a burgeoning new life. And then... Aren't his wife and children super traumatized and full of PTSD and waking up in the middle of the night with nightmares? And The story doesn't recall because they are women and children. Oh, I see. And I see. 19th century history is totally unconcerned. But yeah, like sure, a version... I'm surprised I even cared. A version of this... Yeah, it doesn't... <laughs> it seems a little out of character for you. But yeah, imagine a, a version of this that actually talks about the uh, the migraine... Right, the wife waking up screaming. Emaciated, headachey wife getting no. out of the here only to find her husband being like, I have found the most amazing <laughs> pear trees. You've got it. It's like the most annoying midlife crisis in history. <laughs> uh, and uh, But then, you know, even while things are already turning up great for them, in 1848, as you have foreshadowed, right. gold is discovered not far away. Right, right up there where they already know the people. Good old Sutter. So he heads back for Placerville in the Sierras, where he's been before. What probably wasn't named, and I would say Placerville. Do you say oh, Placerville? Is, is it Placerville? That's what I I would guess say. I've never had to say it. Uh, I've only seen it on uh, as a guide city on interstate signs. It was not named that prior to this. No, it still would have been. But Emigrant Gap would have been called Emigrant Gap. Right. He heads up towards Emigrant Gap. Let's call it that. Uh, what would become Placerville. Pla, pla, who knows what vowelville. It's Placerville, huh? Well, that's what I would say. It's pla the gold is called placer. The uh the little the type oh, that, of gold. Oh, is that why you know there's a specific type of gold? Yeah, pla pla it's a placer mine is the is the kind of um it's the kind of mine that would so placer is like the gold that's down in the sand at the bottom of a stream. So it's not a vein of gold, it's placer gold, which is Ooh. gold that's been weathered um down and is is in a sand is in a gravel. Well, as you've given away, he has happened to find a great place to pan for gold. Uh, rich diggings, rich diggings, as the prospectors Bill. would say. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know why they didn't call it that. Paydirtville. Uh -huh. I guess our expression, you know, to strike paydirt, literally comes from this dirt finding dirt that would pay your way. Oh. Uh, so he comes home uh, the following year with his saddlebags literally bulging. With gold. He's got orchards full of pears and sugarcane, bags full of gold. He was an early adopter, you know, because this is the same year that, you know, President Polk announces to America, the gold rush has begun in his State of the Union address. Really, the only good State of the Union address ever mm -hmm. was President Polk saying, I've decided to have the California gold rush. Ich bin ein California gold rush. And everybody hated when he said, I decided to have the Mexican-American war, but now everyone races for California. Right. And just through an accident of geography, Reed is already there. 
And by the time... And already pear. <laughs> and full of, full of <laughs> pears and figs and quince. He had a lot more quince than most men of this time. You know, I, I was at a restaurant in Southern California one time. One of those restaurants that had an atomic theme and all the waitresses were 70 years old. Like a, it's a, a diner? Yeah, a diner. One of, you know, the kind of diner that only exists in LA. Yeah. And, uh, and their specialty was quince pie. Really? And I was like, quince pie? And the, uh, the waitress was like, oh, you know, she's smacking her gum and she had three pens in her, in her bun. And she said, oh, it's our specialty. You're going to love it. And I was like, quince pie. And she was like, you got to get it. And I got it. I got the quince pie at her recommendation. It was the worst thing I'd ever had in my life. Well, quince is a, it's just a sour pear. Yeah. If you candy, if you candy up the juice, you can make some, um, I've had a, there's a Spanish candy called membrillo, which is just kind of a, a, a jelly like candy you make it with quince juice. I mean, you can make brandy out of anything, but I don't think you can make pie out of anything. I mean, they make pie out of rhubarb, which is a basically just an inedible stem. But they put the rhubarb with other stuff. Yeah. It's this like, just tasted like. It just was like a taste like sour pears. And I was like, you did, you, I mean, I'm sure they put a bunch of sugar in it, but not enough to make it not taste like sour pears. Anyway, I don't recommend it. Anyway, by the time every uh, aimless American man and ne'er-do-well under 30, including all of my ancestors, have arrived, and yours in, probably have arrived in Northern California, uh, Reed, who only had to travel from San Jose, has gotten the money and gotten out. Yes, that's the way to do it. And he crush. now has, and he still is a believer in San Jose. You know, he kind of sees, he's going to use his new bonanza to create a new town. He has a vision of it as just perhaps the state capital someday, just a thriving commercial center. Yeah. So uh, he goes to one of these old land grant families and buys uh, a full square mile of um, open acreage near the plaza of the Pueblo and, you know, builds himself a big adobe ranch house and plants wheat. But then he has his genius idea because he knows what Sutter has done. He knows what John Sutter did out by the Sacramento River. He is going to subdivide it into lots. Oh, very nice. Except not gold lots. He's subdividing it into tract home lots. Exactly. He's going to create neighborhoods with, <laughs> with farms and gardens. He's yes. going to, he's, uh, he's decided to get into real estate. God bless him. And this makes him essentially, you know, the, the richest man in California over the following, uh, decade. Um, he's a, uh, you know, he, he's the local celebrity. He's, um, right. you know, when a sea captain comes in with a thousand dollar Rosewood piano that he's trying to unload, um, it is because James, he he brought it on the ship for his migrainy wife. I can only assume. <laughs> James Reed says a thousand dollars. Sure, you know, paying what is probably some five or six figure amount of money today right. for the nicest piano in the West. Literally sets it up in his parlor. You know, as as families flood into this newly blossoming part of the world, um, he and his family are a little bit of uh, of civilization. And, and and is the Donner connection does it does the tangential Donner connection add to his fame or is it something that he hopes no one will mention? 
Is he? People know it, um, but they also know he wasn't a people eater. But was his wife a people eater? Well, I think you just have to deal with the fact that anybody who got there early enough was a people eater. Like it's really a mark of his of being one of the Brahmins and and the oh. the, the old good families that they were in the Donner Party. Sure, you know they were like they were the first families in Northern California. The same way that the first families in New England can all claim to be witch burners. <laughs> right. The first. How many of witches in- did your ancestors burn? Right. So when it comes time for a constitutional uh, convention, which it always does, when California is becoming a state, Reed shows up and says, easy, no problem. I got the capital for you right here. Beautiful San Jose. There's going to be a state house. There's going to be a plaza. And he promises that he's going to have a place for the legislature to meet. Uh, he gets the votes and the, the uh, you know, what will be the California state legislature first convenes in San Jose, California. Oh. Unfortunately, he didn't actually have any of the stuff he was promising. He had not actually built a state house. Oh, he and, claimed to have built a state well, house. Well, he, he said, oh, it'll be there. You know, it's like, it's like bidding for the Olympics. I see. We're going to have a big polo field. There's going to be a dome for the gymnastics. There's going to be another aquatic center. Yeah, Templehof, the and, whole thing. And I'm sure he meant it every word. But by the time the legislators showed up, really all there was was just um, seas of goopy mud and a half-finished... Um, you know, he had taken this, uh, this two-story Adobe building that was going to be a hotel and, uh, bought it for a song and was going to turn it into a legislature. And on December 15th, the legislators show up and it's not ready to occupy. So maybe I should have turned my house, uh, that's been a sea of goopy mud all these months into a legislature. Did you think of of, uh, of moving the Washington State Legislature? Into your... It hadn't occurred to me, and I think it might have been, uh, it would have been a financially better. Well, the legislators were not into it because there was not enough rooms in town for them to stay. There was nowhere for them to convene. Uh, again, it's all mud and rain. Everybody's sleeping on uh, dining room floors or spare bedrooms. Um, I mean, it, it was California. It, it was the Bay Area in the winter. I mean, that's the Bay Area in the winter that I know even to this day. Everybody's sleeping on the on benches and floors in restaurants. I mean, and the previous year, where when they were still meeting in the old Mexican capital of, do you know what the what the uh, the capital of California was under the Californios? Uh, it was. Uh, uh, yes, I do. I do know it was. It was uh, uh, San Juan de Capistrano. Yeah, actually, you're you're close. Yeah. I mean, it was Monterey. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, Mon- yeah. So um, Monterey, of course. And that they would have in the previous year, they were also just you know in tents and stuff down there as well. Um, so it's not like they were used to a a fine domed building. But I'm sure that's what he said at the time too. It's not like you guys are used to a fine domed building. But he's saying, look, San Jose is still the future. Don't worry. Um, I'm gonna. I'm going to donate, uh, he, do- he deeds, well, he donates like f- fully four city blocks, um, and 168 more town lots, you know, so he, there's space to build all the buildings that a state government would need. All the other big San Jose gold and fruit money, um, empties their pockets as well. Uh, unfortunately, as you and I know, San Jose is not the capital of California in our timeline. Who made a better offer for, for SACTO? One general Mariano Vallejo. Oh, the uh, old general, they called him. Yes. He was the, he was the comandante back in the Mexican days and he owned more land 
than all the gringos combi- combined. Ha, take that, gringos. And he want, he thought there should be a town named for him. If you've ever driven through Vallejo, you know that he got his wish. I do. And it has a I Best did. Buy and a In-N-Out. <laughs> and so he offers more money, more acres, and San Jose cannot top it. And when the legislature has to vote the following year, the capital moves from San Jose to Vallejo in 1852. And then it kind of jumps around a bit, goes to San Jose again, Benicia, finally winds up in Sacramento in 1854. And Reed, due to some slow construction and rainy weather, lost out on his chance to host the state capital. But he didn't lose out, right? Reed never went bankrupt. No, he was still always, you know, this is a story of the rare second act where, you know, this guy who had a disastrous... Uh, m- murderous journey west in an attempt to reinvent himself actually figured it out and became one of the great success stories of his time. He, uh, But in a way, it's also a story of a rich guy who like drove a limo across the country, got away with murdering a guy, <laughs> and then became a war hero and a real estate magnate and, a, and a, like a pumpernickel supply guy. It's uh, It's definitely a story of someone who had a lot of advantages and then accidentally happened to be in the right place at the right time, just taking over an entire (laughs) geographic locale and almost a state within a a whisker of taking over a whole state. And I'm sure thinking it was all because of his own internal merits and, uh, and the, and the goodness of God. He was born on third and and thought he hit a triple. Uh, In the end, he ends up deeding uh, fully 115 lots and five town squares of just prime downtown San Jose Pueblo land, to the city. To this day, uh, those are the city of San Jose's nicest parks and the campus of San Jose State University. So, so the city didn't uh, didn't turn around and profit from selling them uh, on the secondary market. It actually is part of the, what makes San Jose nice. Maybe some, uh-huh. maybe some, but there's some <laughs> nice-ish. <laughs> hey, there could be lol. What's the de- demonym? There could be San Joseans. Yeah, that's yeah. right. San Joseans. San, San Josers. Uh, listening right now. We know for a fact there are. I mean, that's probably the, I mean, Silicon Valley is obviously going to be the center of, of human achievement in the far future because that's where the first sentient machines will appear. Right. That's where the, that's where futurelings, uh, see their origin story, San Jose. Right. It's their Bethlehem, basically. Whatever the computer messiah is that's about to rise out of, uh, a server farm in Mountain View or, or Cupertino. Uh, he, uh, you know, to this day, there's a, a Reed's Edition is a, you know, nice neighborhood of central San Jose. And his family ended up being prosperous um, residents of the region for uh, over a century. Why is there, why is there no Reedston? Yeah, exactly. I guess he's not a ego tripping. No, um, he definitely doesn't sound narcissist like Narcissist like Mariano <laughs> Vallejo. But, you know, as recently as, you know, the old, if you talk to an old San Jose hand, the old sporting goods store that everybody went to was Reed's Sporting Good until it closed in 2008 and it was named for an entrepreneur grandson of uh, of town father James Fraser Reed. I remember Reed's Sporting Goods. Well, if you bought there, you're complicit then in this um, Silver Spoon born on third base midlife crisis guy just murdering his way across the West, avoiding cannibalism really only by murder and then Lucking into a second fortune, it's always these. Uh, it's always these overconfident white guys who land on their feet. I did not buy there because I knew enough of this story to 
to go up to the shopping cart or to go up to the to the checkout with my cart full of freeze dried uh, fettuccine Alfredo and uh, you know like self nesting metal pans, and then I banged the pans together and I staged a protest against genocide, and then stomped out without buying a single thing. Reed Sporting Goods, home of the double decker shopping cart. And that concludes James Fraser Reed, entry 1044.ez0510, certificate number 51638, in the omnibus. Futurelings, in the unlikely event that you are um, made of flesh and blood and not sentient programmings, yeah, I mean, can computers do cannibalism? Can you eat a smaller program? I don't... Well, I mean, think about... what. Whenever I wonder what computers can do, I always go back to the seminal document on the topic, the movie Tron. Um, it seems like... They do eat. They, well, they, they, drink, they drink water with their Frisbees. They drink water with their Frisbees. You, ever see, I, you never see them eat. I think that they explode other programs rather than... They do. Then they they, they, they torture them. them and then tase them and zap them. Yeah, but they don't. They never consume them, right? Yeah. What do you, what do they? Eat? They eat chips. Oh no! You belong in a different kind of jail. I guess that's uh, a dark jail. I guess they don't eat chips. They're in the chips. They're the ghosts. They in are the, the chips. Yeah. In the unlikely event that any of this makes any sense to you, future computer uh, kelp beds. Our shows are archived on social media at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can uh, see what Ken has to say about things at Ken Jennings on, uh, well, really on Twitter. He stays off of all the other social media. I uh, do not participate in mainstream social media, but I have a, my own walled garden. In the dark web. In the dark web. Uh, there's a social media discourse that is connected to my Patreon at patreon.com slash John Roderick. But you should focus your attention on the Omnibus Project Patreon, which is at patreon.com slash Omnibus Project. Your support for our show helps us uh, continue to discuss esoteric topics like adjunct members of the Donner Party. That was a... a uh, a topic suggested by one of our Patreon supporters. Thank you, Axel. And you can also suggest your own strange topics that probably have some f- familial connection. We'll do each member of the Donner Party in turn. One, if, one if at a time. you pay us enough. Um, we, have no, we have no scruples. So go to uh, patreon.com slash omnibusproject and, uh, and tender your support to our show. You can email us, and that will get almost certainly uh, to one of us directly, eventually. <laughs> After Mindy Jennings reads it and censors all the dirty words at the omnibus project at gmail.com. You can interact with other futurelings uh, by Googling futurelings and, and then just talking to whoever appears. Yeah. Go to Facebook, go to uh, Instagram. Actually, you can just go into your holodeck and say futurelings and, and the, the, uh, the council of elders of futurelings will appear around you. Yeah, in your time, that's you're probably some kind of weird, pale fish living in a symbiotic relationship with some kind of rainbow fungus, and the futurelings will be similar. Yes, uh, fish fungus pairings. They will they will welcome you 
welcome you into their refracting pools. And you can mail us things, and this is very important that you remember this. You can mail us actual things in real life at P.O. Box uh, 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. Ken, do you have any uh, any mailbag stuff? Usually you're you're rifling through a big box at this point in the show. Should I should I produce some mail? This is um this is what a listener named Luca sent to us. It's a photo series he shot while living in Tokyo called Signs of Japan, where he wanted to document amazing illustrated street signs that were once prevalent in Japan but were kind of falling out of fashion. So he sent us each a copy of the book he produced with, you know, some of the thousands of photos of kind of fun, cartoony Japanese uh, public warning signs. Oh, these are fun. These are really great. And these are, these are, these have fallen out of fashion? I guess, which is a shame. I want to see a cute little Astro Boy wearing a hard hat every time I... (laughs) Every yeah. time I approach a construction site it in does. Tokyo. It's like, it's like there's Speed Racer and he's got a... Or who is the little boy in Speed Racer that had the, the monkey friend? Uh, Chim Chim and Spritel. Spritel. There's a little Spritel with his blue hat running from a construction site. This car... I wish I read Japanese. This car is angry about something and the eyes are actually the eyes of the windshield, Pixar style, and not the headlights. Well, so I've got a car here with, ang- with surprise headlights as a little boy that looks like Pac-Man is chasing a ball across the street and this car is like say what i assume this was um inspired by our discussion of japanese signage in the english as she is spoken oh yeah a lot of little boys in japan during this era wore uh like spanky and our gang style blue baseball hats yes apparently and always shorts in, in all weathers uh, this is fantastic work. Yeah, that's nice. Luca, thank you so much. I we'll like that. we'll put photos up on the on the Patreon feed so others can enjoy a sample of your work. Right on the coffee table is where that goes. Listeners, from our vantage point in your distant past when coffee tables still existed, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe that kills us all may never come. Uh, but if the worst comes soon and the attendant cannibalism. This recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. But if Providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus.